0: this evening we're going to take a few moments for silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for your uh, goodness, your care, your providential grace, your logistical grace. We thank you for the way you watch over us and take care of us and and have supplied for us uh, every uh, asset that we need in order to handle uh, the adversities, the problems of life. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the life of Abraham, we pray that you would Challenge us with the things that we learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have come to a place in our study of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham is faced with his second test. There are 12 tests in Abraham's life. First test was the test whether or not he would obey God and go to the land. Second test, having Completed that, God promised that he would give him the land in Genesis 12:7. And then the second test is whether he will stay in the land God promised him without taking his own initiative to try to solve problems on his own. But like most of us, we know that Abraham decided that he wanted to use a few human viewpoint problem-solving devices in order to handle the famine situation in the land. And rather than trusting that God would supply the necessary resources. And we see in a comparison with Abraham at the end of his life when he has the test with Isaac, he is ready and willing to sacrifice Isaac because he knows that God promised him a seed, and if he kills the seed, God will and can and is able to resurrect the seed. But he didn't have that level of faith and trust, in God at the beginning, God had still promised him to seed in those first three verses of Genesis 12. We saw that already. So Abraham had the promise of God that he would be alive and that he would have multiple descendants. So why is it that he freaked out and punched the panic button? And as soon as the drought or whatever caused the famine came along, and this famine increased to the degree that he could not take care of all of his employees and slaves and servants and and family, that he bugged out and went to Egypt. And as a result of that, there's cumulative problems. See, when we choose to solve our problems our own way and we get into carnality, it's not just the simple problem that now we're out of fellowship. Now, if there's any kind of uh, attempt to obey the word, it's just wood, hay, and straw. It's not just that we're committing sin, and sin has its natural consequences, and we saw that it can generate its own, uh, form of ad- adversity called self-induced misery that whatsoever a man reaps or whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. We, it's not just that, it's that carnality can start uh, manufacturing its own unintended consequences. And we see a perfect example of this because what happens when Abraham goes down to Egypt, he does something that he's done all along. We have seen this already. And Earlier in Genesis 12, we're told that, that Abraham, when he left Haran, this is at about verse 4 or 5, when he left Haran, he took with him the things that he had acquired and the people that, had, uh, that he had acquired, the slaves that he had acquired. So he is picking up slaves along the way. So he goes down to Egypt. He picks up a slave girl named Hagar. see if he hadn't been in egypt he hadn't he wouldn't have picked up Hagar if he hadn't picked up Hagar, then Sarah would not have been saying later on, well, we've got another human viewpoint solution to the problem of no seed. We're going to just substitute Hagar for me, and this was an incidentally typical hu- typical solution in the ancient world. this was this was SOP. Now, some of us may have a little trouble relating to this. Uh, some of you ladies may not be thinking that, hmm, I'm not going to let my husband sleep with the maid, because that's essentially what happened. But see, in the ancient world, if the woman was infertile or if she was barren, then she would take her uh, servant and substitute and raise up the child as if it were her own. So uh, sort of the early version of uh, surrogate parenting. Well, so Sarah comes up with her human viewpoint solution, which is Hagar, and you have the Egyptian solution, which produces Ishmael, and now you have the beginning of the Arab-Israeli conflict. See, we still have a problem today. The whole world is sitting around tonight waiting for, to find, waiting for uh, Yasser Arafat to discover the truth. They may not think about it that way, but, but we all know that, that... Sometime in the next 24 hours, Yasser Arafat is going to become a Bible-believing, roasting-toasting unbeliever. (laughs) But he will know the truth. But the truth will be too late to set him free. But we have this problem today. Why? Because Abraham decided to solve the problem that he faced at that adversity of the famine by heading down to Egypt and one thing led to another thing, one decision begat another decision and this produced unintended consequences and the next thing you know, rather than just uh, going down to the grocery store in the next neighborhood what we've got is a major international crisis that isn't resolved uh, and ultimately leads up to the battle of Armageddon it isn't resolved until the Lord comes back, so We just just think about the decisions that you make in life, especially the younger you are, the more consequential the decisions are. When you're 88 years old, you make decisions that aren't quite as uh, consequential because you're not going to be around that much longer to deal with those consequences, although they may have more serious consequences for others. So we have to look at the fact that when we are faced with adversity, Every decision matters in some way. We can't just treat it lightly. And so we have to get into that drill mentality where we constantly go through the drill with the problem-solving devices. So as I've said by way of review, as I've said the last few weeks, what we have with the land is that the land, the giving of the land, the granting of the land in the Abrahamic Covenant is analogous to the believer in positional truth. It's an unconditional gift. However, the enjoyment of that unconditional gift is dependent upon the ongoing volition of Abraham. So when Abraham is positive, he's in the land. When he's negative, he's out of the land. You see, the same thing develops later in the history of Israel. When they're positive, they're in the land. They're in a place of blessing. When they're negative... There's cycles of discipline that always relate to the land and to the enjoyment of the land. So that in the fourth cycle of discipline, you have economic catastrophe, you have famines, you have other things of that nature. And in an agricultural society, you have a famine. What does that mean? That means everybody's in trouble. That means it affects every dimension of the economy. So that there's hunger, there's, there's uh, uh, tremendous suffering... There's death, there's disease, all kinds of things because of the famine. And then the, of course, the fifth cycle of discipline is when they come under military defeat and they're taken out of the land. Incidentally, the five cycles of discipline, now this may be different, I've probably taught this before, but don't forget this. The five cycles of discipline only relate to Israel. Now they may, they may to some degree mirror Certain trends, certain cycles of history that take place in other nations, but you see the key is understanding the land. God didn't promise the land between the Atlantic Ocean, and the Pacific Ocean, and between Canada and Mexico to the United States of America. Didn't promise that island off the coast of France to the Brits. Didn't didn't uh, promise that land on the Seine to the Franks, to the French. He did promise the land east of the Jordan, or west of the Jordan, to the Jews forever and ever. And so the cycles of discipline are directly related to the enjoyment or the forfeiture of the blessings related to the unconditional gift of the land to the Jews. Therefore, you cannot take those five cycles of discipline... And flip those to any other people group, because they are covenantally—they are covenantally guaranteed. They are related to a covenant promise, a contract to God. They are the—what um, do you call, call it? At the end of a—if you—if you're signing a loan or you're signing a—signing uh, uh, off on your uh, uh, credit card, you have your little contractual agreement. Your penalties. And that's what you have with the curses. Those are the penalties for breaking or violating the covenant. And then you have certain blessings, which are the rewards or the incentives that you have for keeping the covenant or following the stipulations in the contract. And God did not make a contract with any other people other than the Jews, other than Israel. And remember this, because this is something that gets lost when we start making certain analogies between Israel and other countries. I believe that uh, Israel is what I call, and have taught this, is a covenant nation with God. No other nation is a covenant nation. Now, you can take the concept that's been taught called client nation, and you can apply that to other nations, because a client nation is simply a nation that is being used by God to accomplish His purposes during the age of the Gentiles. But there's no covenantal relationship there. There's no contract between God and any of the nations that He has raised up over the last 2,000 years in order to uh, promote the gospel and are nations that have been raised up that promoted the gospel and protected the Jews. Uh, They have, they were in a sense just client nations used by the sovereign God and the um, development of the, of His plan and His purpose. But there's no, uh, there's no direct contractual relationship. Now, when Abram's in the land, that's the place of blessing. That's tantamount to the being in the right circle, which is place of fellowship. And when he sins, he's he's out of the land in a place of cursing. And this was the problem. He faces adversity with the famine in the land, and we went through various different kinds of adversity. And we defined adversity as the inevitable outside daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. You have minor adversities, which are uh, inconveniences, things that are are, uh, uh, uncomfortable, things that just don't allow your day to run the way you would like it to to run, and these can be minor things to major things where there are major catastrophes, major calamities that take place either personally or historically that affect you. Stress is what happens when you do not handle that outside pressure through the utilization of the ten stress busters. These are spiritual skills. All ten of them are spiritual skills, and a skill is something you practice in order to uh, make it a part of your life. There's an old adage that says practice makes perfect. Don't believe it. It's a lie. Perfect practice makes perfect. If you practice it imperfectly, you're a failure. You have to practice it perfectly. So the reason you go over this again and again, you just drill it into your life and your pattern. When things start going bad, you find out, are you as soon as you recognize that you've already punched the panic button, you've already lost your temper, you've already put your fist through the wall, uh, hopefully it's a wall and not somebody, uh, and you have... Uh, before you've done any of this, just stop and say, okay, first thing you need to do is I need to confess and I need to use grace recovery and get back in fellowship so I now have the power of the Holy Spirit uh, on my side. And now you're walking by the Spirit and you start using the faith rest drill. This is essentially what Abraham did. This is why he becomes a picture of faith and the production and maturity that comes from the application of faith. And we'll see that as we go through this study. Now, last time I drew the contrast between stress busting versus merely coping. And see, this is what the average person does. All they can do is cope with life's problems, and they have all kinds of coping strategies. And you may or may not think that they're evident, because we all tend to put on a face. We all have different masks that we put on and wear at times so that people don't know that we're suffering, that we're mad, that we're angry, and if you're not a believer, it may look on the outside like everything's just going great, when on the inside it's not. And so they use all kinds of basic uh, coping strategies in order to handle this. And they're all, they all flow out of what we've studied in the past on the whole problem of evil. And you whether this is operating at a at a macro level in terms of of religions or whether it 's operating at a personal level, we all handle the problem of suffering, which is just a subcategory of the problem of evil in the same way. first of all, you deny it, you act like it 's not there you just you just disassociate from the situation and you uh, ignore it. act like it's not really there, it's not really happening, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to talk about it, I'm not going to let anybody else around me talk about it. So you live at the level of denial. You're not living life as God intended it to be, which means to be able to enter into all of the experience of life, good or bad, and as a believer you can, whether they are Hurtful, harmful, difficult circumstances. You can enter into it, acknowledge it, and deal with it on the basis of the stress busters, on the promises of God. doesn't mean it won't hurt, but it means that you can live with the hurt. We saw examples of that with the Lord Jesus Christ. The night before He goes to the cross, He is in extreme anguish. He is under such physical uh, pressure. That blood is oozing from his pores, and he is in emotional turmoil. The text says he's not out of fellowship, but he is feeling all those physical dynamics that come as a result of of us going through adversity. Part of the uh, the chemical makeup of the fallen body. Second way in which people cope is just an existential leap into the absurd. Everything is absurd. Life is absurd and so they just just have all kinds of uh, uh uh inconsistent positions and explanations and then third is through escape or in some way anesthetize the pain through drugs sex music you just relationships various forms of escapism alcohol pornography entertainment uh work uh, various neuroses and psychoses, all kinds of different problems. Uh, they call them all disorders today. That's good psychobabble for a just another tool that somebody develops to handle the problem. Every time you hear that, whether it's an eating disorder, which is very common today, whether it's an eating disorder or whether it uh, uh, has to do with some sort of chemical abuse, or whatever it might be, these are simply products of the carnal mind seeking to cope with the adversities, the heartache, the pain, the difficulties of life. And the only way to get past that is to deal with it on the basis of the problem-solving devices, the ten stress busters that God's given us. And as I said, these start off with the basics. You know, in the last seven years or six and a half years, we've gone over this again and again. And I want to make sure you don't forget it. We confess sin. That puts us back in a position where we're filled with the Spirit, which is passive, but we volitionally are active when we walk by means of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians 5.16. Then we have the faith rest drill. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Faith rest drill. Where we trust God actively, but it's not just trusting God in a vacuum. We're trusting his word. We have doctrine in the soul. You have promises in the soul. You have memorized scripture or portions of scripture, and you claim those promises. Grace orientation. We understand that uh, what grace is and that it's not based on who and what we are, that God doesn't bless us because of who and what we are, because of the decisions we make. That, that God has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3. Every, he didn't leave anything out. He didn't forget something. You didn't get bypassed. Uh, you didn't forget somehow God called out your name, and and uh, you looked the other way and missed that blessing. God blessed you with everything at the instant of salvation. And because God is omniscient, He knows that whatever you're dealing with in life, whatever your problem is, whatever your heartache is, he knew about that millions and billions of years ago and he provided the perfect solution for that. And it's through the, through the, all of the grace provisions and the problem solving devices. And doctrinal orientation where we come to understand what God has provided and we rely on that. These are the basics in terms of the basic mechanics for handling. If you master these, just stop every time you face something, say, okay, what how does, each, how does each one of these uh, basic mechanics fit this problem? Where do I apply what? What promises apply? And you see an interdynamic between the third, fourth, and fifth faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, all fit together. They feed off of one another in terms of a cycle. In the faith rest drill, you are taking your faith your, and you're mixing it with promises. Well, what are the promises? That's doctrinal orientation. Well, in order to get doctrine, what do you have to do? You have to understand grace. So these three are interlocking and interrelated. And they're built off of those same... Uh, uh, they're built off the first two, which is confession and walking by the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you get right down to it, the mechanics for walking are the faith, rest, drill, grace, orientation, and doctrinal orientation. When you're doing that, that's walking... By the Holy Spirit. Now we're looked at, we've looked at this many times in terms of the left circle and the right circle. The left circle at the instant of salvation, we're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and we're placed in Christ. We're reconciled with God, we're redeemed, we're regenerated, we have new life, we're adopted into the royal family of God, we have a new identity as royal high priests. And we, our royal priests, excuse me, royal priests, and we have a, um, we're a new creation in Christ. So that whatever goes on prior to salvation, all things are new. We have a new disposition. We have new assets. We have new capabilities. We're uh, indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. And we have the uh, opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with Christ so that we can abide in Him. And when we abide in Him, He abides in us. And it's that close, intimate fellowship. And this is what is uh, illustrated in the second circle on the right. We're f- filled with the Holy Spirit, and He fills us. Or Actually, we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit, and He fills us with doctrine. And as we apply the doctrine, we stay in fellowship. We walk by the Holy Spirit. We are also said to be walking in the light. But when we sin, we're out of fellowship. We're walking in darkness. We're walking by means of the flesh. We're in carnality. And the only way to recover is to use 1 John 1, 9 and simply confess our sins, and then we're back in fellowship. And when we're back in fellowship, then we're uh, moving forward, advancing and the spiritual life. Now we've looked at these dynamics. As we've looked at that, go back to the slide, as we look at that right circle, what is it that keeps us walking in the light? How do we stay there? That's also called abiding in Christ, we saw in all of our studies with John. We stay there through using these problem-solving devices. Here I've got them surrounding the circle. Every time we have an adversity, a difficulty, a problem, we use these problem-solving devices and we stay in fellowship. And that's called abiding in Christ. When we fail to use one of those, we're immediately relying on some sort of human viewpoint mechanism to stay in fellowship, and then we're out of fellowship and we're uh, not abiding in Christ or walking in darkness. So as we walk and abide in Christ... We're also said to be walking in the light, and it all depends on our volition. That's the issue, is how do you, what are you gonna do moment by moment in your, in your walk with the Lord? Well, we developed all of that years ago when we went through James. Now, this is a fitting way to wrap things after six and a half years. Turn to James 2.21. James 2.21 brings in the last part of a section in James that actually begins back in James 1.19. And in James 1.19, the emphasis is on hearing and doing the Word. Now, doing the Word isn't Christian service. That's not what James is talking about here. The concept of doing is based on the Greek verb poieo, which simply means... In this context, to do what you heard, or in other words, application poi o p o i e o it mer- merely means to hear the word that is listen to the teaching of the Word of God, don't just let it go through your ear and out your fingers into your notebook, but to hear to listen to let it change your thinking romans twelve two I'll renovate your thinking, so hearing. Leads to the result of doing or application. Now, in the first part of or the the last part of chapter one, first part of chapter two, James takes hearing and doing, and this is analogous to faith, which produces works. You see, when we hear something and James is taking it to the next step of not just hearing it, not just letting our eardrums be vibrated, but to believe that which we heard. If we have have believed that which we've heard, then it's going to culminate in application or works. That is, production. And in this case, we're talking about divine good production. That's which has... Eternal consequences. Okay, this is the analogy. Now people get all messed up because as soon as they get down to uh, James two fourteen, where James asks the rhetorical question, uh, "What profit is it, my brother, if someone uh, might someone should say or someone might say, I have, I have faith, um, but you and you do not have?" You do not have, but you do not have works. Uh, faith is faith able. Is faith faith is not able to save, is it? And as soon as you get down there to that word "save," everybody jumps up and thinks that save equals getting to heaven. And so you have the problem in James 2:14 to 26 of people thinking that what James is talking about here is a is justification that includes at some level the concept of works because in James 2:21 and following James gives two illustrations of what he's talking about. One is from Abraham, the other is from Rahab. Abraham, as mentioned, verse 21, was uh, James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And so we see here that Abraham is used as an illustration of spiritual maturity in the New Testament. So when you think about Abraham, remember I said Abraham is going to be a picture of Faith at salvation, that's justification, uh, justification by faith alone that occurs at um, in, in Romans uh, chapter four. Now this is a crucial doctrine to understand. It was not understood for many years in the medieval period in Roman Catholic theology. What makes a person acceptable to God? Is it something inside the person? And see, this was the answer for so many centuries. People thought that there was some sort of moral quality in the person, that at salvation something got tweaked inside you that made you different, that made you acceptable to God. Except this is not what the Bible is talking about. And in the Reformation, in the Protestant Reformation, which was... Uh, begun by Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517. We just had, everybody around here calls it Halloween, but it's actually Reformation Day, because that was the All Saints Eve, and All Saints Day was November 1st. That was a holiday. And so Martin Luther posted these 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. And a thesis is a plural for a thesis, so when you have more than one, you have a theses. And these were talking points, to put it in modern vernacular. He had 95 talking points related to the doctrine of salvation as it was taught in the Roman Catholic Church. And the basic idea was that what is it in man, does anything in man make him acceptable to God? And see, the Roman Catholic Church said that man became Oh, gradually, over a period of time as he partook of the uh, sacraments there was an infusion of grace so I'm going to put these dots here and each time you participate in a sacrament you get another another shot of grace so how many shots of grace are enough to make you acceptable to have changed you so that you are now acceptable before God Well, nobody knows. I mean, Roman Catholics have never defined that. So you can't ever, in Roman Catholic theology, have an assurance of faith or an assurance of salvation. In the Reformation, they recognized, based on Galatians, based on Romans 4, that what happens at salvation is the the individual who is minus R, he's a sinner, he lacks righteousness, is given... The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When the sinner puts his faith alone in Christ alone, then God legally or judicially imputes that perfect righteousness to the believer. So that when God now looks at the believer, what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ, not your dirty, rotten inner laundry. That never impresses God. It doesn't impress him today. And it didn't impress him when you got saved. See, what impressed him when he got saved wasn't even your faith. It was the righteousness of Christ. See, faith is faith. Anybody can believe anything. It's the object that's important. And when you put your faith on the object of the cross, that perfect righteousness of Christ was imputed to you, and that when when God the Father's righteousness saw Christ's righteousness, at that point he declared you justified didn't have it's not psychological see that's the that's what happens today is people want to take salvation as some sort of a a psychological rehabilitation it's some sort of psychological experience you you feel good about things or you have, have had a major turn in your life I remember back in the days when when we were all suffering through the year of the evangelical when uh Jim Akata was the president of the United States and we all had to Learn what goobers were. At least people up north of the mason Lake dixon line had to learn what goobers were. You know that's peanuts if you didn't learn, because uh, we had a peanut farmer for a president, and he talked about he wore his. He, 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 you know, is it that interesting? Jim <laughs> wore his his liberal. Universalistic pseudo Southern Baptist theology on his shirt sleeve. How many Democrats were screaming? Huh? How many? You can't count them on one hand. But you get a president, and 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 Jimmy Carter talked about it all the time. But this president doesn't. But he has a true conservative, biblically based. Faith, at least as far as salvation goes I don't know how much doctrine he actually understands or has been taught he goes to a Methodist church so that probably says something but he understands salvation and he understands a few basics But he's, and he believes in a literal Bible Jimmy Carter did not and does not believe in a literal Bible so he didn't anger anybody well, you get a president who, just because it's known that he believes in a literal Bible, then everybody makes a big deal. Everybody voted for Bush in this last election had to have been some sort of backwoods, fight-and-fundy, legalistic, conservative, ready to produce the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, that's how the Democrats understand this, because they don't understand anything. You know, they haven't been to church in a long time, at least the, the liberal media uh, I think the last survey taken eighty percent of them don 't believe in God, you know so they can 't relate they can 't comprehend this, so all they can do is deal with with, with stereotypes but it's um, just so interesting that that when you have a president that that was an was a so called evangelical but held to liberal theology he didn 't aggravate anybody. but when you get a president that does someone that does hold to the literal Bible, it always aggravates people. Because we live in the devil's world, that's why. You know, it's stirring up the enemy. Now, I don't know how I got off on that. Anyway, we're talking about justification by faith. So Paul in Romans 4 talks about Abraham as the model for justification uh, justification by faith. And this is a forensic act. It's not experiential. It is judicial. It was a declaration made by the Supreme Court of Heaven related to the act of faith directed toward Christ at the point of salvation. Now, when you come to to um, James chapter 2, all of a sudden we're faced with the fact that it says that that Abraham was justified by works. You have to parse this because there's basically two positions. One is justification is a legal forensic decision by the Supreme Court of Heaven based on faith with no works involved whatsoever. Faith minus works. On the other hand, all other, all other systems. They say the justification is faith plus works. There's something experiential going on. There's something emotional, something psychological, whatever it may be. Uh, it, it is There is something that is going to produce a changed lifestyle because it is not a forensic justification, but somehow this minus R gets changed even if it's a little bitty plus in front of that R. There's something... That's changed in you. Now there is something that changed in you. At the instant of salvation, you got, you got a new spirit. You were regenerate. But that new spirit did not replace your sin nature. It doesn't override your sin nature. It doesn't diminish your sin nature. It simply gives you a new capacity to have a relationship with God. You can only and because of your position in Christ, you now have a choice to walk by the spirit instead of by the by the sin nature. Now what happens in James 2:24 is Abraham it talks about Abraham being justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Now when did Abraham offer Isaac on the altar? That's in Genesis 22. Now Abraham has been a believer since before Genesis twelve. In fact, in Genesis fifteen seven, which is the next verse that's quoted there in um, James two twenty-one. Uh says in verse twenty-three rather says quotes, and uh the scripture was fulfilled, saying, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, or it was reckoned to him, or imputed to him. As righteousness in verse, in verse twenty three. Now that's a quote from Genesis fifteen seven, which is a long time before the events in in, 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 in Genesis chapter twenty two. In fact, in Genesis chapter fifteen seven, Abraham is about ninety years old, might have even been a little younger. You're ninety years old, and by James two twenty one, this is at least thirty, maybe forty years later. But we've gone over the exegesis of Genesis fifteen seven. That the, per, the Hebrew perfect tense there really must be understood in the English as a, with a, with kind of a pluperfect sense. He had already believed God, and his justification, that is his salvation, his, uh, uh, phase one, save from the penalty of sin justification, took place before Genesis 12. So, James 2.21 is talking about the fact that works justify something else. They justify in the sense that it's a demonstration of the reality of our previous justification. So it's not salvation. Now if we look at James, uh, the key to understand this is in James 2.24 which reads in your English Bible, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, or in some versions it says not by faith alone. Now the problem that you have here, and this is really the key to understanding uh, this section of James, the problem that you have here is that the last word in this verse Make sure I find my place where I've got this written in my notes. The last word here is the Greek word. Okay. The last word here is the Greek word monos. Actually, in the Greek text, it looks like this: monon, M-O-N-O-N. This N as the final ending is an accusative case. But the form, the dictionary form, is monos, M-O-N-O-S. now this is why grammar is so, so important. With the that OS ending is is um, that OS ending is an adverb. Let me make sure I get this right here. Is an adverbial ending manas. The adjective, the Greek adjective is written like this manase. M-O-N-E-S. Now see, there's just a one-letter difference between manas and manes. But manas is an adverb and manes is an adjective. Now why is that important? Well, look at your text. Let's go back to the verse. Look at how that's translated. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, it makes it sound like you're justified by faith plus works that are in keeping with that faith. Right? That's what the Lordship crowd teaches. That's because the word only in English is what kind of a word? So it's technically correct, but it's confusing. L-Y, what's that? Come on, you grammar people. It's an adverb. Anything with an L-Y is an adverb. Adverb modifies what? A verb. Okay? But what it looks like in that sentence is that the only or the alone, as it is translated in some versions, not by faith alone, that the alone or the only qualifies the faith. But an adverb, but faith is what? Noun or verb? It's a noun. So an adverb has to modify a verb, not a noun. So the pro, and the other thing that compounds it is that there's no verb in that last clause and not by faith. There's no verb there. What's the verb, what is the verb supposed to be in that last clause? Justified. It's borrowed from the previous clause. It's understood. It's called an ellipsis when you leave out the verb because it's understood. So the phrase reads, you see then that a man, I should read this. Let's stretch it out. You see then, That a man is justified by works and not justified by faith alone. Okay? But you got the alone or the only in the wrong place. Because it, because it modifies the verb, not the noun. So it should read, you see then that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. Now, that that makes it clear that there's two different kinds of justification. See, if you translate it with the adverb modifying the noun, it makes it look like there's one justification with two phases to it. But if you are grammatically correct and you have the uh, adverb modify the understood verb, not only by and justified and, and not only justified by faith... Then you recognize that there's two different kinds of justification that James is talking about. One justification relates to phase one when you are saved from the penalty of sin, and the other is when you are, when, when you are experiencing phase two salvation, when you are freed from the power of sin. And that's what, that's what Abraham is illustrating in chapter 22 of Genesis, is that he has matured to the point where his works are demonstrating that he, his justification, and that he has now uh, handling adversity apart from apart from sin. So we go back and we look at James 2. It's very simple. What use is it, my brethren? if a man claims that he has faith, that is what kind of faith? this is all through here this is talking about the kind of faith that a that an that a believer has that has value. That's why James says leading up to this that you you need to not only hear the word but do it. So he says, what use is it, my brethren? What value is it? if a man says he has faith or says that he's heard the word. But he has no works; that is, no application. Can that faith save him? We're not talking about uh, salvation from the penalty of sin because this guy's already a believer. He's talking about my brethren. So he's addressing believers, and he's talking about the dynamics of faith in the life of the believer. Then, in verse, you see, in verse twenty. Verse 15. So in essence, in verse 14, he's saying, What applicational value is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have doctrine, but he does not have production? And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, that's the same illustration he used earlier in the chapter. And one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What value is that, and that's the same word, what aphalos is that. Doctrine doesn't have any value unless you apply it. And if somebody's hungry, somebody's suffering, and you have the means to help them and you don't, then your your doctrine of what you claim to believe has no value. And so in verse 17, uh, James says, even so, faith, if it has no application, that's how we should understand works, if it has no works, no production, is dead being by itself. Now, a dead faith is not a non-existent faith. A dead faith is a uh, non-viable faith. It's, it's, it is not producing anything. Remember, there are seven different kinds of death in the Bible. And death never means non-existence. It means separation. And so this is a faith that once was alive. You have to be alive before you're dead. Always remember that. You gotta be alive before you're dead. So this doesn't mean this person isn't saved, it means that even though they have faith, they have doctrine in their soul, it's not doing them any good. It is non-productive. And then verses 18 and 19 bring in an objector. This is a typical type of discourse at that time called a diatribe where James is using a fictitious antagonist and putting words in his mouth, which are the common objection that he would run into. And the objector says... Well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I don't have time. I'm not going through James, so I'm not going to deal with what, take the time to make sure you understand this. But basically what he's saying is this objector is using sarcasm in order to demonstrate that, uh, you can't show application and faith. What, he's, what the basic contention of the objector is, is that faith and works are totally unrelated. And basically, he's going to say, "See, you've got moral people out there, and they have no faith. And you have people out there with faith who are immoral. See, you can't demonstrate a connection between the two. They're 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 not related. That's, that's basically what he's saying. And so he uses an example. In verse 19, he says, "You James, you believe that God is one." You do well. And there he uses the word, He does, it's not the word do, poieo, it's the word works. Oh, excuse me, verse 9, am I in, yeah, 219. It is the word, uh, excuse me, it is the word uh, poieo. You do well. And that's where it should end. You believe that God is one, you do well. That is, that poieo is the same word he's used all along for doing what you hear. And so he is commending James for the fact that you have faith and, and hearing and you do. That's great. But then on the other hand, he says the demons also believe. Okay, you believe and the result is you have application. But the demons believe and they shudder, no application. See, the point he's making is you both believe. It produces one action on one person, another action on another person. So how can you say there's an intimate connection between application and faith? This is is the argument of the objector. In other words, he's like many licentious believers today and says, you know, I believe that, but I'm just going to live the way I want to live. No application. But what James replies by saying in verse 20, are you willing to recognize, you foolish person, that faith without works is... Useless. Faith without works is useless. And the word that he uses for useless is the Greek word arge. Arge. A R G E. And arge means that it is non productive. Now, that is a much more precise word than dead works. And it gives us the idea here. The whole issue here is how do you produce in the spiritual life? And you produce by using the problem-solving devices. When Abraham is walking by means of faith, he's producing. But when he's not, he's out of fellowship, and what he's producing has a lot of bad decisions that result in unintended consequences. So then, having said that, James uses the illustration from Abraham that it's not just an academic exercise. It is a study to learn how to think about reality as God has described it in His Word. And we are barraged day in and day out with the thinking of the cosmic system. You get it in the newspapers, you get it in editorials, you get it in the, in the sitcoms you watch on TV, you get it in the movies, you get it in the comic books, uh, you get it in in uh, fantasy novels, you get it in mystery novels, you get it in everything. That's why I don't get all wrapped around the actual, axle when some people say, well, should my kid read Harry Potter? I'm not going to take my kid to watch a Harry Potter movie or a Star Wars movie because they're going to get hit with all kinds of human viewpoint. Like going to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs isn't going to hit you with the same stuff. Or going and watching, let's see, what's a rather benign movie? That that uh, people people like uh, the Parent Trap. Okay, everybody says, "Well, gosh, whoa, well, what's metaphysical about the Parent Trap?" Well, you got a problem in the movie, and the kids try to resolve it. They disobey their parents a number of times, so you know the end justifies the means. I mean, you, you can analyze everything because any TV show, no matter how quote moral it is, Leave It to Beaver. You know, everybody thinks, oh, those shows back in the 50s were so family-oriented, they were so great. You've got Ozzy and Harriet, you've got Leave It to Beaver, you've got all these other shows. Weren't they wonderful? Yeah, they gave us the rebellious baby boom generation. <laughs> Isn't that right? All those kids that grew up watching all those shows started marching against Washington during the Vietnam War. Yeah, those were Great shows. Look, even the Western, you know, we all grew up on that. But look at our generation. So, it, it, it's, human viewpoint, it's always expressed, even if it's a benign moral human viewpoint, it's still human viewpoint. It's still teaching human viewpoint techniques, human viewpoint strategies to cope and to solve problems. It's embedded in everything. Whether you're talking about something that has certain overt fantasy qualities like Harry Potter or Star Wars, or something that doesn't. So the only option is to bury yourself, go out, dig a hole, bury your, your head in the sand, and not not see anything. I mean, you know, just take human viewpoint entertainment for its own sake. It's just human viewpoint entertainment. But you got to teach your kids that that's what it is. And you don't get sucked in uh, to thinking in terms of that frame of reference. But it's just as evil to watch any of those other things, if you're going to get all wrapped around the axle about human viewpoint or cosmic thinking, then uh, it's just as uh, evil to read or watch anything else because everything is going to communicate some level of cosmic human viewpoint thought it's unavoidable what you have to do is learn how to think biblically and have your you know your biblical screen up so that you're filter out the garbage you can enjoy it for what it is you can enjoy the creativity of unbelievers because they're created in God's image and that's part of their makeup. You can enjoy that for all of its worth. You can read, uh, some, some of these novels and you can enjoy and appreciate that. But don't get sucked into the human viewpoint approach, approach to life. The key verse that we gotta come back to is James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is what's gonna happen to you for the rest of your life. You're going to just face it. Job said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Uh, finding a pastor may be the least of the adversity that you face. You, you were looking, you know, like somebody once said about a job, I was looking for a job when I found this one. You know, you were looking for a pastor when you found me. You know, you're just looking again. God will supply just as he had before. This is just another opportunity, but it's another test. It's a test for the congregation to hang together. It's a test for you to apply doctrine. It's a test for you to remember that it's about the witness of the corporate witness of the local church. And as you apply doctrine to the test, then that produces endurance. James 1-2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because you know that the testing of the doctrine in your soul produces endurance. And let endurance have its maturing work, that's really teleos there, not perfect in the sense of flawless, but maturation. Let endurance have its maturation production, that you may be mature and sufficient, lacking nothing. This is when you realize that God has provided everything. The great solution is the only solution, and the human solution is no solution. Abraham has to figure that out, and uh, we will see more of him, more of his tests, as we continue that this study. However, there will be a short hiatus until we get ramped up again, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for all that we've learned, all that we've studied. We thank you for the illustration of Abraham, both in terms of salvation, justification by faith at, at uh Phase one, salvation, and salvation from the uh, power of sin, and phase two, ongoing salvation. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by these things, recognize that each day brings a multiplicity of tests and adversities to give us opportunities to train ourselves to use the problem-solving devices to move forward in the Christian life and to realize uh, the extent of your grace provision in our day-to-day uh, growth Father, we pray these things in christ 's name amen.